was just thinking about this baptismal tank and uh, thinking about Michael coming out of this tank. And I'm thinking about the whole plan of redemption that led to right there. I mean, that led to the decision to make a public declaration that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. You know, this whole moment that started with Adam and Eve and their sin and then uh, God making his way through uh, this whole Davidic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, not in that order, covenants, right? We've been working our way through these covenants and, uh, and now today we get to the covenant of David. David was the king of Israel. You know that story, probably. Probably the best king in Israel's history. The one who was uh, given this kingship based on, uh, based on the fact that God had chosen him to replace a leader that wasn't such a great leader. I read an article this week uh, from, uh, I think it was Business Insider magazine, uh, on the chairman of Berkshire Hathaway's uh, corporation. His name is Warren Buffett. You might know him. I mean, you probably don't know him, but you might know of him. Uh, net worth $102 billion. He's been, uh, he's almost 92 years old. He's been leading this company for 100 years, even though he's only 92. And, uh, and the cool thing about him is uh, his down-to-earth approach to dealing with life and business. One of the things that he said, they were asking him, how do you hire somebody? And he said, well, you know, this is what we do. Um, we have three categories that we look at. We look at intelligence, good thing to look at. We look at energy because we want somebody who's smart and we want somebody who's not lazy. So we look at those two things. And then he said, third and most importantly, we look at integrity. And he said, if the, if the laziness isn't there, if the energy is there and laziness is absent, and if intelligence is there and uh, foolishness is absent, but if... That, but we still look at one last thing. We, we look at integrity. Because you can be smart and you can have a lot of energy, but if you don't have integrity, then you're going to ruin yourself and you're going to ruin our company and we don't want you here. I think it's so interesting. Because that's exactly what happened in the life of Saul, the first king of Israel. If you go back and do some historical analysis of his life in First Samuel, you'll find him doing some things related to his integrity with the Lord, particularly, that was awful. And God took him and said, listen, this is not the kind of person that I want in my program. This is not the kind of person who's going to bring about moments like this that we just experienced. He's, this is not the kind of person who's going to be in the line of the one who's going to bring forth the redemption of the world. I'm going to call out another. I'm going to call out a, a king who has a heart after my own heart, and his name is David. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. I, I, want, to, I want to read to you the specifics of the Davidic covenant. Uh, you know, one of the things about the Davidic covenant is it, it comes on the heels of a conversation that God has been having with Nathan the prophet. Nathan the prophet has just interacted with uh, David. And David has said to Nathan, listen, I want to build God a house. I want to build God a place to dwell on this earth. He said that, and he said that because every time that, God, that David would go from his palace to the place where he would worship God, he would see this beautiful home that he lived in and this tent that God had been dwelling in since the time of Moses. And he didn't think that was right. But what God told him through the prophet Nathan was that he wasn't going to be the one who built the temple. 
He wasn't going to be the one that was going to build the house that he was going to dwell in. He, he was going to do something different through David. He was going to bring forth an eternal kingdom and an eternal throne and actually bring the throne and the temple of God into the hearts of people through this redeemer who would be his offspring. That's the context of the Davidic covenant. Look at verse 8 of chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. And he says in this, Now therefore, this is God speaking to Nathan, Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come for your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. See, this uh, covenant that God makes with David is primarily this in verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, I want to kind of unpack this by going back to the first part of uh, verse 8. And, um, and, and in the first part of verse 8, what God's doing is he begins this process of promising some things to David is that he, he tells, them, uh, tells David, he reminds David of kind of a historical tracing of, of David's life. And in, in verse 8, he reminds him, he says, listen, I took you from the pasture to the palace. I took you from a place where you were this kind of the, the, the last thought of son. David's father was Jesse. Jesse had a bunch of sons, and when God was going to pick another king, he told Samuel the prophet to go to Jesse's house and to, to pick one of Jesse's sons. Actually, he would pick the one that God would show him. And so Jesse lines up all of his sons, and as, and as, as Samuel makes his way down the line looking at these sons, he, he discovers that, that none of these, well, highly capable and strong guys were the king that God was looking for. And so Samuel says to Jesse, don't you have any other sons? And he says, yeah, I've, I got one more, but he's, <laughs> you know, he's nothing. You know, he's, he's so nothing that all we do with him is send him out to hang out with the sheep. I mean, that sheep thing, it's this, it's this theme that keeps running through Christianity. 
that shepherds and sheep, uh, you know, there, there's something about them, that, that sheep are so dumb and shepherds are so important, yes, but they're also the most common of people. In some ways, anybody could do it as long as they were responsible and had what was needed. And, and this was David. And when Samuel saw David, he was the one who God had put his hand on. So unattractive. So nothing in David that would have attracted anyone to him. Nothing in David that would have spoken to being this kind of person who could lead the nation of Israel. Nothing in David that was what the people of God had been looking for originally. You know, this king thing in Israel was a little problematic. Um, when Moses led the people into, out, of, out of Egypt and into the wilderness and to the, to the boundary line of the promised land, the next leader that took over was the mentor of, or the, the mentee of Moses. His name was Joshua. And Joshua led the conquest of this whole holy land or promised land as we call it. Uh, and the people of Israel took over that area, destroying and pushing out all the people who were living in the land at the time. And Joshua, while he was there, he, he, he was the military leader who led the, 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 the charge against anyone who came before the Lord. But when Joshua died, you know, there was really nobody to take his place. So God raised up a, a group of people, judges, men and women, who, who would bring forth God's justice and God's power and God's reminder of their sin to a place where Israel would then repent. And there was this cycle in the period of the judges, seven times where the people would be living in obedience to God, and then they would be influenced by the people around them, and they would fall into rebellion, and God would send a nation to discipline them. And in their pain and in their struggle, they would cry out to God, and God would send them a judge or a deliverer. And that judge and deliverer would then beat or defeat through the hand of God, the nation that was oppressing them, and they would start this cycle of obedience again. And that happened seven times. One of the themes that went through Judges, though, however, was this very common idea. In fact, God said it at least five times in the book of the Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. And everybody, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Not much different than the way we live today. Everybody doing what we think's right in our own lives. But eventually, that chaos got to this place where, the, you know, the people of God, the people of Israel couldn't handle that any longer, and, and they wanted a king. And so God gave him a king, a king that was just like the other nations, this king by the name of Saul, who was so different than David. He was, he was handsome. He was a head taller than everybody. He was, in every part of his nature, he was attractive to the people. He was the king. He looked like every other king, except, as we said earlier, he had no spiritual character. He had, no, he had no desire to follow the Lord. So he, he ends up making weird and inappropriate sacrifices. He, he calls on a witch to speak into the dead. He continually, he continually fights against people in terms of power struggle. 
He wants to destroy David because he thinks David's a, a better warrior than he is. And the people are starting to feel like they're going to follow David. So he wants to destroy him. In every way, Saul was a negative influence on the people of Israel. But David was not a negative influence. I mean, David was an everyman in some ways. I mean, you read through some of the things that David did and you think, really, how could you do that? How could you, how could you do the things you did with Bathsheba? How could, you do the, how could you be a king and a man that follows God and do those things? And, and here's the problem, or here's the thing about that, is that everybody sins. And that David was, David was this guy who was chasing after God's own heart, not because of his behavior, but because of his repentance, because of his desire to make things right, because of his understanding that he had fallen and sinned. And this was the kind of person that God wanted leading his people humble, repentant, chasing after the Lord, being protected by him. And it was this king, David, who was going to be the king whose line would be forever. I mean, that's what, that's what verse 16 says. Well, let's go back to verse 13 for just a minute. He says, listen, let me, because God does this a lot. God starts to talk about some specific human being. And in this case, it is David's son, Solomon. And then all of a sudden, without us really knowing it, that kind of changes to where he's talking about Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a picture that God gives. It's, it's like Solomon was a type of Christ. And, and here's how this plays out. Look, he said, he shall, this is Solomon, build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's talking about Solomon here because Solomon was going to be the one who built the temple. But, but let me remind you about something. If you go into the books, the, the letters that Paul writes to the Corinthians, and Paul says to the Corinthians, you know what God has done in you? You know what the Holy Spirit has done in you? He's actually taken residence up in your heart. And so now this, this temple that used to be in Jerusalem is actually your heart. So while, while Solomon was going to build this physical temple, Jesus Christ builds a personal, physical temple spiritually in our hearts. I mean, here's this picture. Solomon building the physical building, Jesus building our hearts. He keep, keep reading in verse 13. He says, I will, I will be to him, this is now talking about Solomon, a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I'm going to discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. So now, here's, here's what we're, the, the correlation or the connection. You've got Solomon who when he falls into rebellion, when he sins against the Lord, God's going to send him people who will discipline him with a rod and with stripes. In other words, the, the whip. And, uh, and does that sound familiar at all to you? If you ever read through the book of Isaiah, the, the prophet Isaiah starts to speak of the Messiah, this Redeemer, who's going to come, who is going to be afflicted, who's going to be under the punishment of the rod and the striping of the whips. Not because of his own sin, but why? Because of our sin. And, and Jesus is going to be the one who takes on the punishment that was intended for our sin. It's this picture that God is building and painting for us 
It's the, it's the reason that Michael can come out of that baptismal tank and, uh, and, and proclaim it to the world that he's a follower of Jesus Christ and he can have eternal life because he has trusted in a God who is, sits on an eternal throne. That's what David's saying. I'm, or that's what God's saying to David. I'm going to, I'm going to bring forth through you which is an interesting thing, that he's going to bring forth himself through a human. That's how he becomes incarnate. He takes humanity and deity, and he combines them together, and he lives this life. He lives this life among us in a perfect, holy way, and then he dies the death that we deserved so that we could have an eternity with him. Because he's an eternal God, he gives us an eternal hope. He gives you an eternal hope. He gives you the confidence and the security that the condemnation that your sin has brought on you, this separating factor of sin, this death that it produces, is now not just brushed away or aside, not just swept under the rug, but perfectly taken on your behalf by what Jesus did. And there's nothing. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, there's nothing that can separate us from this love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You know, there's nothing that you can do. There's nothing that you have done. There's, there's nothing that you will do as a follower of Christ that can separate you from this eternal kingdom that the eternal king has established. You have a future if you're a follower of his. But let me say this. The future isn't all there is. The future is not all there is. Because, because because of that future, because of this perspective that this world isn't all there is, that there's a future, there's a way, there's certain things about life that now becomes part of who we are. Consider this, that, that because of the future, because this isn't all there is, there are certain characteristics and certain character qualities about you that, uh, that can be as God intended them to be. For example, joy. Joy. Because this isn't all there is, because there is a future, because you have a future in Jesus Christ, because God is using this world right now to build you into the person he wants you to be, you can have joy in every single thing that happens to you, no matter how good or how bad. It doesn't have to produce happiness. It doesn't have to give you an emotional high, the circumstances that you ex experience. Every situation, even those that produce the deepest grief, God is using to draw you deeper into a relationship with him. And the only, the only perspective that makes sense is that there's more to this life than this life. And that can give you joy. Secondly, man, because the the world that we live in is fading away because, because this isn't all there is, and I can live with patience among the people who are the most, oh, nerve-wracking, right? I mean, I can live with patience in the midst of the most, I mean, the most, wow, having to wait so long for what I really want in my life. Some of you have, some of you have waited for a spouse. Some of you have 
waited for a new job. Some of you waited for other very specific things in your life and, and you still don't have them. And your, your desire is to just have whatever it is that's in you that you want. And, and what God is saying, because there's a future, you can still wait with hope and patience, even if you don't get everything that you want. I can still, I can still be interrupted. I can still not get everything that my heart desires. I can still have patience in that because of the future. I mean, if, it, if everything was about the moment, if everything was about the here and now, then, then all of us would be grabbing whatever it is that we could get. If you believe that all, this is all there is, if, if your only perspective is the here and now, the physical, then, man, all, all bets should be off in terms of anything. You, you, should, you should grab as much of this life as you can get you should grab everything that there is from this world and take it. You shouldn't wait for anything. You should just move forward. And no matter what it costs or who it affects, you should grab what it is that you want if this is all there is. But this is not all there is. Because we have an eternal king who has paid our eternal debt, man, we have a life and a future. And that life and a future affects what's going on right now. In us. It gives us joy, gives us patience, but it also gives us generosity. Vicki was telling our staff the other day that uh, last week at our Sparrows Ministries meeting, uh, Sparrows is a ministry to, to, to widows and uh, women who come to church without their husbands, and it's, it's mostly elderly or older, uh, older, let's say that, older people. And, um, and, and it, they're the sweetest, if you ever, man, it's, they're the sweetest group of women um, that there is, I think. And they're, they're so joyful in their life. Now, a lot of them are in their 80s and 90s. And so last week, Vicki was saying that, um, that it was for their Christmas party, they were, they were supposed to bring stuff that they could donate to Salvation Army so that the, the women who were in the Salvation Army project, uh, program could could have a joyous Christmas or a, a happy Christmas. And so these ladies were bringing in bags on their walkers with their canes, some in wheelchairs. And I, and I, you know, you hear that story and just think, man, that is just awesome, isn't it? I mean, and, and why do they do that? Well, part of it is they understand the perspective on their life. They, they, they see they see where they are in life. They, they see they've lived with eternal perspective their entire life. And they know that, man, if, 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 if this isn't all there is, then give away what you have to bless other people with it. I mean, the fact that there's a future and that that future is so much more significant than this present means that, man, the things in this world, we ought to just hold so loosely. Do you... Do you hoard or do you give? Do you, do you like just want to, is everything that you own or every minute of your time or every resource or every ability that you have, is it, is it something that just plays into your own existence or are you willing to let it go and let people benefit and let God bless others through what you have, actually through what he's given you? It's not even yours. It's not even mine. It's his. If I understand eternal perspective, I'm a, I become a generous person. 
And finally, if I'm living with the, with the reality that I have an eternal king on an eternal throne and he's produced, prepared for me a future, man, then there is some urgency, right? I mean, Queen Elizabeth, she's been on the throne of England for nearly 70 years. She's the longest, she's the longest reigning monarch in the history of Great Britain. She's the fourth longest reigning monarch in the, in the history of the world that we know of. I mean, 70 years. But, you know, her, her reign is coming to an end. I mean, it's, it's, not, because, it's not because some nation's going to overthrow Great Britain or England soon or because she's got some political rival who wants to take over the throne. It's because she, she's 94 years old. She's going to die soon. I mean, you're going to die soon, even if you're only 40 or 30 or 20, right? We're all dying. And even if we, even if we get 100 years, I mean, it's gone like that. You know, the, the time between now and January, I don't know, I was, Lacey, who did the announcements, she, at the first service, she said, you know, we got membership coming up in January. And I know that feels like 100 years away, but it's only three weeks. I mean, Christmas makes it feel like time has stopped. And the reality is nothing stops time, right? Time just keeps continuing to tick away. And that should create in us an urgency, an urgency, not just for our own welfare, but for the spiritual welfare of the people that God has put you near, the people that God has put us near. If God is eternally on his throne and I have an eternal future, my responsibility is not just to hunker down and wait to experience that eternity. It's to have the urgency that people need Jesus. People need this message of hope that you know, that you have. There are some of you who, who, who need that message of hope right now in this room, that Jesus died for your sins. And I urge you to place your faith in him for forgiveness and eternal life. But if you've already done that, I urge you to understand the reality of your eternity that it is coming. Yes, but until that day, because of it, you can have joy, you can have patience, you can be generous, and that you ought to be urgent about this message that God has asked us as his people to deliver to those who don't know it. Let's pray. God, you're... Uh, Your reign is beyond anything we can even imagine. What, is it, what does it even mean that things are eternal, that they'll never end, that, that this day is, is no closer to the end than tomorrow will be and, and will never be close to the end because there is no end. But you are the one who's been forever from, the, from before the beginning to you know, well, from now until when it, you, are, you were, you are, and you'll be. And now, Lord, we are, and if we have a relationship with you, we will be with you. And you've done that through taking on flesh. What we, what we wait for and celebrate, what we're going to 
cry out in joy for on Christmas Eve at Bergfeld Park that you came, God in the flesh, to deliver us from our sin. significance of that moment but also how it relates to where we are in this moment.